The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, October 28th, 2014 from Slate. It's the gist. So on the show today, I'm going to talk to the head of OKCupid. Funny story. We find out about each other. They say this guy, Christian Rudder, is a particularly good match for our show. So we message each other and he seems intriguing. You know, he seems interested in us. A few back and forth with these messages. We agree on a time and a place. And I'm going to go to this place yesterday. I try not to get up, too up, too down for these things. You know, you do so many of them. You try to keep an even keel. So we get to the place and I see him. And he just does not look like his photo. I mean, on the book jacket, he has on a blue shirt. I mean, I think it's a blue shirt. It's a black and white picture. But I, I guess I imagined that he was wearing a blue shirt. But here in real life, he's got like on a gray shirt and maybe a blue sweatshirt. But I don't know. I was like expecting a blue shirt. You know what? I mean, and his hair, it's not, it's not bad. It's just different. You know, it's just not what I was expecting. So like I say, you build yourself up and he says all these interesting things in his book and on his profile. And I'm pretty sure that he doesn't use Tinder or match. And so that's good. Also, I'm not naive. I know that, you know, after we do our talk, he's going to go on Terry Gross or Charlie Rose or who the hell knows else from CNN. But you know, for that moment, I at least want to be seen as special. So you know what I do? I just leave. I just turn and I leave. I make up some excuse, something about my dog or my job or interviewing political reporter Mark Leibovich. And that part's true, by the way. I'm not proud, but I have to do what's best for me. You know, what's right for me. But I feel kind of bad. I mean, when I think about it, his shirt was blue and his hair, his hair wasn't bad. It was just different, you know? So today... Luckily, we set it up again. His press materials promise an interview that is daring and original. His book says it's visually arresting and full of wit. And I'm not stupid. I'm sure that they give these press releases to hundreds of interviewers, right? It's a numbers game. But something about it spoke to me. Ah, well, what the hell? I'm living in the moment, living for now. So we're going to talk to Christian Rudder on the show. And in the spiel, it's all about the timing. But first, look, we always get down about campaigns, but... Every so often, there's someone who breaks through or an idea that catches fire, except not this time. Mark Leibovich is the chief national correspondent for The New York Times. He's the author of This Town, Two Parties and a Funeral, plus plenty of valet parking in America's gilded capital. He's been chronicling our leaders and would-be leaders as they demonstrate that they have the right stuff by attending hoedowns and subjecting themselves to being whacked in the nards. Hello, Mark. <laughs> Hi, Mike. Who was that politician who took one to the, he says, gut, but we know it wasn't gut. Yeah, no, no, it was uh, one of the more memorable campaign ads in the... This cycle was this guy, Mike McFadden, who was running for Senate in Minnesota. He's a Republican running against Al Franken. And uh, apparently he's a youth football coach, and they shot an ad of him with the kids. Washington's fumbling our future. Spending has to be stopped. And Obamacare needs to be set. Good job. He, at the end, he says, Now let's get out there and hit somebody. And one of the uh, one of the players proceeds to hit him right in the balls, whatever you want to call it. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm Mike McFadden, and I approve this message. We say in the New York Times, actually, in the junk. In the junk, oh, okay. Which I thought was actually a great achievement for me to get that in the New York Times. But anyway, um, yeah, no, the larger point is that, that there's this incredible race to be as kind of familiar and almost bumpkin-y as possible, even though people like Meg McFadden, are, 
he's a Georgetown trained lawyer. He's you know he's a, he's a CEO of, a, of an investment firm. He's very wealthy and and yet he's chosen to present himself to the voters of Minnesota as a coach who gets inexplicably hit in the gonads. So um, anyway, I sort of looked at the larger phenomena of candidates sort of embracing the bumpkinization ethic and trying to essentially dumb themselves down and debase themselves for the purposes of uh, for apparently connecting with the, with the rest of the electorate and looked at some of the other things across the country. And it would be one thing if the people we were electing really were farmers. I think maybe that was yeah. part of the uh, founder's intent. But the appalling thing is, as our political class is drawn from a smaller and smaller subset of millionaires right. and Harvard-educated people, that's when we right. get the acting of the bumpkinification. So that's the, exactly. that's the galling thing. Right. Yeah, not to mention the zillions of dollars spent on paying generally New York or Washington-based media consultants to make you look more bumpkinized by coming out and finding some generic hog farm out in Iowa like they did with Joni Ernst, who is always appearing with pigs, to accentuate the fact that she was around pigs when she was growing up. Uh, I don't think she spends a lot of time around pigs now, but of course there's the easy pun of, you know, I can cut pork in Washington, blah, blah, blah. So, but it's true, though. I mean, it takes a professional to be a good bumpkin, and, and quite often, you know, when actually parties, particularly Republicans, nominate real bumpkins like the Christine O'Donnells of the world, they tend to, um, you know, out-bumpkin themselves because they expose themselves as people not ready for prime time. Right. So you mentioned all the uh, big media buys, the media consultants. Maybe she still is around pigs if you count them. But have you seen on the trail as you're out there, I've read a lot of statistics about the role of money and money, unsourced money and PAC money and Koch brother money. But it's been this way for a decade in a close race. That's the only thing you get on TV is just a slew of ads. Are you seeing this in a different way than you've always seen it, the effects of money on elections? First of all, the volume is just so much more. I mean, 10 years ago, I mean, actually, Citizens United hadn't been, that that decision had been made yet. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, this is going to be, once again, the most expensive midterm elections in history. I mean, probably about $4 billion will be spent nationwide. I mean, in this noise machine, you do have to work harder, I guess, to get notice because most of the ads are negative and, and to sort of be creative about it is part of getting noticed these days, especially with a lot of the media nationalized and saying, oh, here are the top 10 most effective ads. But no, I mean, it it is the money, I think, is at the root of a lot of this stuff. And the bottom line is for as many, you know, for as bumpkinizing as these politicians are are being portrayed on the air, I mean, a lot of people are getting extremely rich around this. And a lot of people are spending, you know, an inordinate amount of money funding these campaigns. So um, I think it's a pretty sad cycle myself. That is true. On the other hand, you could argue, okay, $4 billion, billion's a lot of money. It sounds like a lot. But, you know, yeah. Dollar General's revenue for the quarter was $4.72 billion. We are talking about electing an entire Congress and a third of a Senate for the United States. Maybe, maybe these politicians are actually coming on the cheap when you consider their worth and value. That's true, actually, yeah. So we're seeing, like, great fiscal responsibility and a bargain at work here. I don't buy that because, I mean, frankly, just the numbers have, I mean, I think if you look at, you know, 12 years ago, the numbers were, like, disproportionately well, probably in the hundreds of millions nationwide. But the jump since Citizens United and since the advent of super PACs has been quite dramatic. Look, I mean, again, I mean, I think the infusion of money into politics has been very, not gradual at all. I mean, just there, there is this oligarchy, you know, both of donors and of, of consultants who are benefiting. So, yeah, I mean, if you want to compare, I mean, I just saw a stat today that 
well, more money is being spent on Halloween candy nationwide mm-hmm. than on ads. I mean, so what does that tell us about our priorities? It tells us that we want to eat candy on Halloween. I don't know. I, I just I, I think it's pretty excessive myself. Now, the thing that upsets me most about campaigning is not actually the number of ads. I think they probably cancel themselves out. I right. do wish there were more high-minded debates. It's yeah. the polling, and it's the fact that every candidate knows exactly what they need to say to align themselves with the voters. And for yeah. the mo- most part, getting elected is an exercise in not adopting good, smart, or, or anything like that positions, not even selling what your honest positions are to the electorate. Right. It's just knowing what you need to say, and then some candidates will say it cleverly, and some candidates will step in it a little bit, and that's how we get our elections. That's basically it, and it's thoroughly depressing to watch, and I guess that they feel they have data that shows that that will be the path to victory for them, and, you know, they're smarter than me, and they have a lot more data than me, so maybe they're right. I just, as a consumer of this, I don't have to like it. And And it gets to a point where... Allison Lundergan Grimes is told the Kentuckians hate Obama. So she ties yeah. herself in a knot, not even saying if she voted for Obama. And maybe I'm naive or getting old, but I remember when Mario Cuomo used to say, yeah, I'm against the death penalty. I know you're not. Here's why. And he didn't win on that issue, but I do think he got a lot of respect on that issue. But maybe I'm just being nostalgic. And if I looked at polls, I actually would wind up being wrong. Maybe, yeah. I mean, certainly, I mean, I think a human being would be refreshed by some candor, whether you agree with him on the death penalty or not. Look, watching Grimes make that, you know, just the painfully trying to get through that answer was not an edifying experience for me. Um, <laughs> you know, maybe, again, they thought that there was good data-driven information or, or sense behind it. But, look, this is why people think that there is no soul in politics. This is not a soulful exercise. And ultimately, I mean, it's what they think will win for them. And if you look like an idiot in the process to a lot of people who might have higher expectations, I guess that's part of the uh, the collateral damage. But look, I mean, they're neck and neck in the polls. I mean, I think McConnell's probably had a little bit. But Chuck Todd, the host of Meet the Press, said that that answer was disqualifying. And obviously, you know, he, he regrets the statement because it doesn't. <laughs> seem like he speaks for the voters of Kentucky, at least as far as polls have shown. Have you seen, have you witnessed any campaigning where you said, now that's a little different or that's well said or anything hopeful in terms of uh, someone trying to get elected and saying edifying things or saying yeah. exalted things? You know, not this cycle. <laughs> I think it's been a particularly dreary cycle. There has not been a single candidate, I think, that has really emerged as, like, this is the future, this is someone who is telling us something different, this is something who is presenting themselves in a different way. Right. Chris Christie, who, you know, I saw in Florida the other day, I mean, in, in Iowa the other day, too, he was sort of the last flavor of the month in terms of the new candor in politics. He is the newest version of the Straight Talk Express. You know, many people, you know, the media and, and in the sort of political wise guy class, always is anointing someone as the new truth teller and, and usually quite inevitably they their acts wear thin. But no, I don't I don't really know who that would be in this cycle at all. Mark Leibovich, the chief national correspondent for the New York Times magazine. Thanks so much, Mark. The chief. The. Thanks for the V. The V is a key part of the title. <laughs> you yeah, don't want to be a co chief. I mean come on. What's the wait, margin wait, wait, in that? Wait, the alternative uh, yeah, no, that's true. I, I wanna I want to be the chief. In fact I want to end the title with the chief. Just that should be it. I am the chief. Thanks a lot, Chief.
Christian Rudder is the co-founder and president of OkCupid, a guy who just wanted a date, so he made an entire web monolith to get one. Actually, Christian, that's not true at all, is it? Yeah, no, no, I've never used OkCupid. <laughs> you would never, right? <laughs> I mean, it's humiliating to. Ah, well, I mean, I, the reason I haven't used it is because I was dating the person who is now my wife uh-huh. uh, when we started it. But So um, how did uh, your real-life dating history in any way affect how you constructed the algorithms or even just positioned OkCupid? Uh, I mean, I guess back when we were making the algorithm, there's four, three other founders, so there's four of us. So back when we were making it, we were really trying to model what it was like to get to know somebody. And we had to do it with radio buttons and a little bit of arithmetic instead mm-hmm. of words and, and thoughts. So our, our kind of real world experience had come into it there. You know, it's like you, you ask her something, you decide what you think about what she said and whether you even care in the first place about the answer. And we basically just put that into a web interface and put that into an algorithm uh, sort of writ large. That's basically what the site is. So what were some of the things maybe you thought would be true, or you hope would be true that turned out not to be true? God, oh, man, I don't know. So we were wrong so many times. At this point, I can't even remember when we were right. Yeah. <laughs> um, some of the things that we were most surprised at is like, you know, you can put in all this work into your interface and everybody puts all this work into their individual profiles and we put all this work into our algorithm, the back end of the site. But when it comes down to it, when you show those 10 people, no matter how you figured it out and all the time that went into that, people just click on the hottest picture. Yeah. So, so like we had to jump pretty quick to adjust that. Otherwise, your site explodes because the same hot people get all the messages. Does OkCupid embrace that, embrace it as much as it can, do whatever you can to fight that? What's the attitude towards just embracing attractiveness? Well, let me say, if you embrace it, your site will will go away. I've seen so many kind of startup dating sites when I log in just to see what they're doing, you know, the competition. It's just me and then a bunch of women in bikinis or whatever. Clearly, they took their hottest users to show me the new dude. Right. And if you do that, it just never works because they get too many messages already. They're probably not actually even on the site anymore. I don't get a reply. We acknowledge the truth that people go on attractiveness so much, but we definitely don't embrace it. We try to fight it as much as possible. You know, you say that, but I had a wonderful four-month relationship with a young Angie Dickinson, so that worked out <laughs> based on a different <laughs> dating site. There you go. Man. That was policewoman.com. Um, <laughs> so in this book... It seems like you're using the basis of stuff you've learned and stuff you think about at OkCupid and trying to talk societally, right? So what are some of the big areas that you light upon? In the book, I branch out to race. Um, I look at anger as kind of mediated through Twitter. I look at geography measured through a variety of different data sources, you know, Reddit, kind of a psychological geography of Redditors, stuff from Craigslist. Google search and looking through sort of the racial ups and downs, especially of Obama's first campaign versus mm-hmm. both Hillary Clinton and John McCain. So, yeah, I basically take the tools that I developed working at OkCupid, which is, you know, basic data analysis, but also looking for human interest stories and understanding what it means for actual human beings, not corporations or whatever, and apply that to other data sets as well. It does seem like the problem of getting people to mate is the sort of thing where people are really super interested in doing it and will jump through a lot of hoops and will pay a time and attention, whereas the problem of stamping out racism might be a little tougher. No, no, oh, yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. But I don't try to stamp out racism. I mean, That's that would true. be an absurd proposition right, for, but for I, anybody. But there are, there are applications for the stuff that you know, which is a, just a harder lift, you know? Oh, you can apply it to education. You can apply it to poverty. Sure. It's not like everyone is so desperate, in fact, has a Darwinian instinct to make, say, education results as good as their dating results. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think the idea that data can help people address some of these problems is legitimate. And the, the race stuff in particular, like, I mean, race is a big factor in dating and, and, and dating sites especially are unique 
in the world because at least in the online online world is we're just trying to manage strangers you know facebook you know everybody twitter you're followed by people at least have is an intellectual relationship with you here we're just in a basically a giant warehouse full of people all judging each other and that's like an excellent environment to look at something that's so taboo um and, and and yet also so ingrained in people's lives. And so. you find, I mean, how there are racial discounts. Certain races just don't do as well, and certain do better. So, what is the breakdown of that? And how do you determine? How do you how do you come by your conclusions? So yeah, so the discount that you're talking about, or the the sort of I, I call it underappreciation, because discount it sort of implies some inherent problem in yeah. being discounted. Is that black men and women and Asian men all get significantly less? likes messages fewer replies to their messages when they choose to write not and and the the effect is about 25 percent that's discount if you will the exact same pattern exists on other dating sites too it's not just a unique thing and i think it speaks to the larger sort of societal reality of how people have come to understand what is attractive i think i've seen the site i i I know people have gotten married off the site you can't argue with the fact that it's so efficient in essentially putting single people, let's hope they're single, single people in a party with other people who they're very likely to hit it off with. Like it's this huge party. However, how the interactions go at the party, it's just a necessary consequence of it being on the internet, is so different from how real life conversations go. You text someone, you write a sentence, you think about it for, it could be a week, whereas in real life, there's a real conversation. So it seems like one thing is awesome and the other thing is such a hurdle. You know, how do you negotiate that? In terms of the way we operate the site, we live in full acknowledgement to this thing that you're saying, is that our only job is to get people to have that text, three, four, five messages, out the door, sit down, have a cup of coffee, have a beer, and just see how it goes. That's where, like, the sex comes into play and the attraction. Mm-hmm. That's where that really happens. You know, there's very little, like, actual flirting that goes on in OkCupid. It's very, like, oh, hey, you look cool. You like the Arcade Fire. I have tickets. Or, like, what are you doing? I live in Brooklyn. Oh, so yeah, here's my favorite bar. And then they go out, and then then this all this other stuff comes into play. And so every decision that we make on the site is really optimized towards people having this very short, brief conversation. We don't really try to figure out who's a soulmate, any of this like deep forever match type of crap. Nobody at the office believes that. People working in online dating generally do not believe that. It's it's a very, it, humble is an overused word. It's, I'll, say, I'll say limited. We have a very limited approach with what we're trying to do. You know, Is there any way to get past that? I don't know. Uh, face chats or other forms of Face chats would turn into dick chats real fast. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, we will never have video on OkCupid, mm-hmm. uh, at least not while I'm there. What about audio? Well, same thing. Okay, man. podcast. <laughs> All right. How much of your OK Cupid experience gives you pleasure and makes you look at humanity positively, and how much makes you look at humanity and shake your head? Most of it fits the second description for sure. I mean, I think that the one that the, the the part that makes me happy is when people come up to me and are like, "Hey, we got married," or "Hey, this is my boyfriend. We met on OkCupid." I mean, I love that part. That's amazing. It's it's a smaller version of the same thing where if you're that guest at the wedding that introduced the couple, you just feel like special. Yeah. Know? So I get that all the time, and which is amazing. But I've talked to a lot of people who work with data. You know, writing the book especially. And I have had several people just totally unbidden by me just volunteer that the more you spend the time with this stuff, the kind of more cynical you you get or or the more it confirms your sort of like worst intuition about how people work, whether it's race or sex or uh, rage or any of the stuff, which, which, you know, like, look, our, our intuition, that stuff has been built up over millennia, to say the least. And there's a reason why it's why folk wisdom has been passed down and, and it's also often proven true. I mean, it, working at OKCupid and then writing the book again, like you, you get to see it 
in numbers. You get to see it with a kind of clarity that you, you have always felt, but it's really interesting. It's sometimes humorous to be able to like actually point at the age that, uh, at which a guy is over the hill or a woman is over the hill or any of this stuff, you know? So the two times that I like are when I get to laugh at, at the cynicism and then, of course, when people get married from OkCupid, but the rest of it, it can get pretty dark. Christian Rudder is the author of Dataclism, Who We Are When We Think No One's Looking. He's a co-founder of OkCupid. Thanks so much, Christian. My, my pleasure, man. And now the spiel. It's all in the timing. So I listen to NPR, love the new app, NPR One. Saw this story come up on the app. I'll read the headline to you. Ancient viruses lurk in frozen caribou poo. Three things got me about this. The first two are obvious, caribou poo. But it's the verb, really. It's lurk. Ancient viruses, that's okay. But anything that's lurking in caribou poo, caribou poo, not the environment that you associate with any amount of lurking. So I was hooked. I was hooked from the start. I was hooked by the lurking, but of course I stayed for the poo. So here the story comes. I press play. Hey, it's Robert Siegel. When we think of viruses, we tend to think of the dangerous ones like Ebola. But viruses are everywhere, and there are lots of different kinds. Don't suppose Today, I'd be lucky enough to get Robert Siegel to actually say poo? All right, that doesn't happen, but I'm sure we're going to get to the poo part soon. found frozen deep beneath the ice of northern Canada. All right, he's introducing the reporter. Here it is. This is the reporter. He's going to tell me about the poo. In San Francisco. My day job is to discover new viruses. All right, get to the poo. Get to the poo. Where's the poo? Where's the poo? I came for the poo. Give me the poo. But Delworth's also got a sort of hobby of trying to find viruses in odd places, which is how he got interested in high mountain ice. Where is the poo? We're like a minute in and the promise of poo remains unfulfilled. Finally, the poo. Remains. Organic remains is his little euphemism for tons of caribou poo. And you know, when the poo comes, it comes by the caribou load. So we, we analyzed uh, four layers, starting at uh, four, 400 four, years. Wait, wait, wait. Four layers of ice or four layers of poo? F- four layers of poop. So I don't know. Was this a good job? Was this over-promising and under-delivering poo? Was this delayed poo gratification? Were they sleeping on the poo, withholding poo like a fussy toddler? Similar phenomenon occurred to me as I was thinking about my pet cause. We all need a pet cause. My pet's not caribou. It's goblins. Goblins don't exist. I always am making this point, and it's maybe not the best way to make the point, because whenever I make the point, people look at me like, yeah, we know goblins don't exist. No, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying on Halloween... The expression is, well, here I am on MSNBC last year at this time trying to explain my pet issue. We got, I don't know, what is it like, less than two weeks before Halloween, Halloween when all the streets are filled with ghosts and... Goblins? Goblins, yes, exactly. (laughs) Except there are no goblins. I looked this up. No (laughs) costume stores sell goblin outfits. Party.com doesn't, costume.com. There are just no goblins. We say ghosts and goblins. There are no goblins out there. I figured out why. Goblins goblins are weird. They're small. They have one trick. They bite you on the leg. They're just not Not good. Yeah, they're not at all cool. If you want to be a ghoul, be a zombie. We got to do away with the ghost and goblin idiom. 
That's it. I think you got what I'm trying to say. I see this all the time, all over media, all over local news, in every paper. Hey, it's Halloween. Little ghosts and goblins. There are no goblins. A year ago, before I worked for Slate, when we were just friends, Slate and I, I said, let me write about this. They said, yeah. So I wrote a story about how no one sells goblin costumes. Not really. There are some minor sales of goblin costumes, but no one dresses as goblins. Goblins are, they don't have any shtick. They could just bite you in the ankles. They're not like ghosts. There's no boo. There's no sound associated with them. They're just a very, very minor league, you know, quasi-demon. My article in Slate was met with, what's below disapproval but above total indifference? Somewhere near there. So all of my efforts to expunge the ghosts and goblins thing, I started it last year. It seems to have gone nowhere. Did I mistime it? I started saying this like two weeks before Halloween. Maybe people weren't as aware of the ghosts and goblins idiom. I'm saying it now, three short days before Halloween. Don't say ghosts and goblins. When someone says ghosts and goblins on the news, at least roll your eyes. And this, add this, document a goblin for me. If you can document an actual goblin, not an actual goblin, a kid dresses as a goblin, who comes to your door and you ask him, what are you? And he says, a goblin, right? He can't say, oh, I'm a demon. And then have you say, like, kind of like a goblin. No leading goblin questions. If the kid self-identifies as a goblin, take a picture of the goblin and you and that child will win a prize. What is the prize? Don't know just yet. Know what it won't be. Caribou poo. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi loves to laugh and traveling to new places. Joel Meyer takes his job as managing producer of podcasts seriously, but he doesn't take himself too seriously. He also loves yoga, craft beer, spending time with friends, and traveling to new places. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is equally comfortable in jeans as formal wear, doesn't take himself too seriously, and loves traveling to new places. You can subscribe on iTunes or give us a listen on Stitcher. You can get our daily email at slate.com slash just email. You could sign up for Yo and the podcast part of Yo. That's right. Get the app Yo. Sign up for podcasts and we'll tell you when the show's ready. Go to facebook.com slash slate gist and get into it with us. Email the gist at slate.com. I want you to know I take myself extremely seriously and insist you do too. Really have no idea why you're laughing right now. I told you of my distaste for that particular human interaction. I would like to point out that once you travel to a new place, it ceases to become new. Therefore, you should stay at home like I do and perform experiments on rodentia. That's what I like to do. Thanks for listening. <laughs>